pound per 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 pound per per pound are live today as we did last week and the week before. This is Jay Key. I'm here with my friend Michael Ken Stewart. And this week we have another special guest in our presence. We have none other than Miss Trisha Kim. She's a PhD. She has a PhD in art, history, and she's also an educator based in New York City. Currently she's an assistant professor at NYU and an assistant curator at Monument Lab. She is also the creator of Queens Who Rule. It has no affiliation to Queens, New York. Uh, I guess it might, you know what I mean, in the long term, but uh, it's a platform that centers uh, around history and art from the perspectives of women from Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and uh, different diasporas. I love that word, diaspora. So uh, please follow Queens Who Rule and the Twitter for Trisha is Lower End Theory. Not Low End Theory like the Tribe album, but Lower, Lower Than Low, Lower End Theory. Inspired so by the Tribe album. It is inspired by the Tribe album. So shout out to Ms. Trisha Kim. How you doing? How we, how we feeling tonight? I'm well, how are you? I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Thank you for being here, you know. Um, you know, appreciate you for holding us down on this very special episode. How, how has um, quarantine been for you? Have you been um, stuck in this apartment that you're at right now the whole time or was, what's been the situation? So for the first couple of months, I was just locked in here. I wasn't going out. I was sort of like drinking a lot <laughs> in my apartment. And then I made my escape in June to California where my parents live in SoCal, um, where all the other Korean people live. And as soon as I left, New York was popping. People were going out, like to eat at restaurants. And so I was, I definitely felt like I was missing out, but I've been back for the past month-ish now. And it's okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. Nice, yeah. nice, nice. So is there anything that I missed uh, while I was describing your illustrious career? Nope, that was perfect. Spot on, all right, all right. So, all right, so with that said, um, for some of the I don't even think we have new listeners on this particular episode, but uh, how many if viewers you are, do we have? We how many viewers, viewers do we have? We got nine viewers right now. Nine. Yeah. Okay. Nine is not a lonely word. You know what I mean? Oh. Oh. Right, Bill, shout out. Shout out my father. Yo, yo, oh, yo. your father is here? Okay. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Shout Stewart. Out to your father. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Stewart. My pot stickers. <laughs> Happy Labor Day. All right. All right. Uh, Mr. Stewart is a big fan of um, Weird Al. Shout out, so shout out to, out to uh, Weird Al as well. Um, a very eclectic uh, musical choice, but uh, you know, <laughs> shout out to him. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. So with that said, some of the newer listeners, uh, $6.99 per pound pays homage to high food delis in New York City, where they serve a wide variety of dishes. So our goal is to serve you hot takes on career, culture, and community from a diverse set of perspectives. Bong, bong, bong. As always, shout out to all the viewers that are tuning in right now, including Mr. Stewart. I'm, hot. I'm, I'm, I'm always out here telling everyone to get the numbers up. We got to move. We got to migrate. Elevate your mind state. So listen to more $6.99 per pound. You know what I mean? All right. Michael, Boom. any other information uh, that the listeners need to know? Like always, drop your reactions and questions in the chat whenever you hear something that you want, that you think is, uh, I don't know, whatever you're 
you have uh, thoughts of. And then you can also subscribe to our Twitch channel uh, for free if you have Amazon Prime because Amazon Prime gives you one free uh, Twitch subscription. Um, so that's free on you, nothing on top. So just give us a follow. Um, that's money that comes in our pockets to create this show. So please do that. And if there's anything you want to create a clip of, a 30-second clip, uh, just you know whatever we say or something interesting, uh, go ahead and go to the clapperboard on the bottom right corner of the screen, and Clapper. that clip will live on our Twitch channel for everyone else mm. to see as well. So please bong, do bong, that. Bong. Please continue to engage as always. Drop a comment um, in the chat. Where are you guys tuning in from? Let's see. Let's see where we're at. Where are we at right now? Where's everybody coming from? You know what I mean? All right. It's Labor Day today. So I, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people out here barbecuing, you know what I mean? Doing what they got to do. Uh, you know, I hope everybody stays safe, though, because, yo, like COVID is still an ongoing situation. You know, um, one of our uh, store staff, uh, you know, recently just got diagnosed with COVID, um, you know, I had no interaction with this man for close to seven months now because we, you know, we, we don't cross path at all, but it's still an ongoing issue, man. You know, people are still passing away. Uh, people are still being affected. So please, if you're tuning in right now and, you know, for the staff, for the team that's on right now as well, yo, man, make sure you keep your mask on, make sure you wash your hands and be safe, you know, be safe for real. So, but let's kind of, um, you know, let's talk about some situations at hand, right, you know, real quick. Uh, so this news came across uh, from Trisha, this young lady. I don't, maybe she's not young anymore, but it's all relative. Uh, this lady named Jessica Krug. Is it Krug or Crook? Krug. Crook is good. Krug. Crook. So she's a crook. <laughs> okay, so Jessica Crook. Well, that's her name now. So uh, uh, Jessica Crook. Uh, she uh she's a professor where she's an educator of some sort no she's not yes, yeah yes, okay yes. so she Washington. is okay so she is so she's an educator um and uh for a long time she falsified her identity her entire identity that uh yo i'm uh i'm black and i'm black and i'm black y'all and in reality uh they come to find out that she's you know whiter than multi-purpose flower so, uh, uh, I mean, yo, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't you know what I'm saying? But, uh, what's, what's the situation with this? So wasn't there like another lady from NAACP that was on this wave as well? Like what's yes. up with these like white folks, like saying, yo, I'm black. You know what I mean? Like why are they doing this shit? Like what what's the deal with this lady right here? I have no idea, but okay. So can I like hop in on this? Because yeah. I'm obsessed with this story and this is all me and my friends can talk about. So Jess Krug. You did. You are. You texted me like just the link and I was like, Yo, yeah. what is this? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, in her bio, she um, hmm. sort of cast herself as a quote, unrepentant and unreformed child of the hood. And so that's how she like- Wait, that's what she said? She, she said it yes, herself? Her bios, yes. In she her said, bios. she said, I'm from the hood? Yeah. Yes, from the Bronx. She pretended she was that she's Afro-Latina. Yeah. 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 Wait, what? <laughs> yes. Wait, no, I, I, I don't know any 
self-righteous person from the Bronx that would say in her professional bio that I'm from the hood. Like, you know well, what I'm saying? Is, well, this is part of the problem is that, that she wild. would... Okay, so she is an associate professor, so tenured professor of the history department, I think, of African-American history at George Washington University. So this is like a legit oh, position. Oh, this is George Washington University, yeah. like DC, like official yep. shit. Yeah. And oh, tenured. Damn. And she's yeah. tenured. And she's tenured. Tenured. It's crazy. It drives me crazy. And her book, it's called, I forget. Okay, okay. So it. just quick question. For for the for the listeners right now that doesn't understand the significance of what it means to be a tenured professor, can yeah. you kind of break that down for us a little bit? Yes. So tenure is this really medieval system um, or old school system. <laughs> Whoa, no, you took is, it way back. Okay. And, no, I mean, not medieval, like actually medieval ages, middle ages. But like what I'm trying to say is that it basically, once you get tenure as an educator, whether it's K through 12 or it's at a university level, you basically can't get fired unless you commit like a felony crime. So unless you're a murderer, you can't really get fired or from your position. And at the university right. level, in order to get tenure, everyone in your field that has tenure has to look at your scholarship, your publishing record, your teaching and service, but right. also your, your scholarship record to basically say, yeah, you're in, you're good, you're given tenure. It means you have job security for life. And it's right. like, right. The gold it's standard. bulletproof, you know, it's dapper Don, you know what yeah. I mean? Teflon Don, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, what the crazy part is, you got like a board of professors or other academics from the same field going yeah. through your shit and basically yeah. battling you, right? Like, yo, why did you say this? What do you think about this? And exactly. then it's a very grueling right. and difficult process. Right. So she went through all of that yeah. claiming she, to be something that she's not? Well, because her scholarship is good. And I don't know <laughs> this field. No, I'm being serious. I don't know this field very well, but from other people that are historians in this field, they say her work is great. Like she published mm -hmm. Duke University Press, which in like black history, black modernities, transatlantic movements, and so on and so forth. It's the highest press that you can publish with, right? So it's mm. like, you have to be good in order to get through that entire peer review process. So she's smart, but she had to like put on this minstrel show and masquerade as this Afro-Latino mm. woman. Mm. And what's yep. insane about this is that she would like, you know, go around. She has a backstage page where she her stage name is Jess Cruz and she had like an activist name Jess La Bombalera and she <laughs> called like yeah. this like affect this like terrible a whole lot accent. of AKAs okay a yeah. lot of okay. AKAs exactly like JK AKA Pocket Watch she was Jess La Bombalera <laughs> um I have a question about Pocket Watch later but basically she's a fraud and so Rachel Dolezal is who yeah. you're talking about, I think, Jakey? Yeah. Is, is she, was, was she like, the NAACP lady with the, yes. she had like dreadlocks and everything? Yeah, yeah. And like really like curly hair, yeah. like a bro. Oh, yeah. Okay. Got like, you. Yeah. You know, and she tricked people and she was like, I'm a light skinned black woman. But the thing with Rachel Dolezal, from my understanding, is that she like believes that she's black. I mean, it's evil. She genuinely it's believes wrong. that. Yeah, yeah, she right. She genuinely believes that. Like she has, right. yeah. You know, I'm not a psychologist, but she's a psychological problem. Right. But the problem with Jess Krug is that she's like, no, I'm white. I just pretended to be black. Oh, she admitted it. She admitted she it. She wrote it. So she oh. wrote an entire. There's a whole medium blog post yeah, yeah, she wrote I know. 
that was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Please cancel me. She's yeah. like, she's still weaponizing her white womanhood in this yeah. whole situation, which is whatever. But shout out to Shan Wise, who was, who was said, I love this lady. Her mom said she can be anything she wanted and she wanted to be Afro Latina. <laughs> I mean, and it's and it's this woman that was like directing her own cancellation. Like, can you uh, yo, imagine? Shout out, mm-hmm. shout out to Shan Wise, though. Nah, like that's a very that, yo. She gotta be white. If her mom told her, like, yo, you could be anything, yo. <laughs> that's no, that's but- yo. You don't even have to go through any sort of like DNA test, yo. You white. Like, if your parents told you that, you're yeah. definitely white, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, nah, but that's that's fascinating. So this lady, okay, so she is she gonna lose her tenure? Like, is is the academic community gonna yeah. bar her? Like, is there even a thing like called barring a person like this? How does this work? Well, so I don't I don't know I don't know what GW. Excuse me, this is professional. Um, I don't know what <laughs> no, GW. It's fine, no, we do this do. all the time. I'm stretching, Um, but I don't know what GWU is going to do. Like, I have no idea, but the other problem, like the word on the curb is, or on Twitter is that the position she was hired for. So you have to understand that humanities lines don't open up. It's, Mm -hmm. there aren't Mm -hmm. a lot of positions. So there are a ton of PhDs, a ton of smart people who are qualified, but don't get the job. But the job that she did get was a diversity hire. That's what people are saying. Which means it was meant to go to... Oh! Right? Yeah. And so she... And she won a bunch of fellowships sort of misrepresenting herself. And I don't know. I just think it's like... I think it's so dishonest. I think it's a thousand times worse than Rachel Dolezal. I mean, Rachel Dolezal is pretty evil. But this is like next level vile, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, Yeah. Damn, this shit is a movie. Yeah, yeah. This shit is a movie, yo. This chick, um, damn, yo. Wow, she's a con artist, but yeah. she's a really good con artist at yeah. that. So, yeah. I mean, so you know, as you, you're you're a person of color. You are in the humanitarian yeah. humanities field. Yeah. Um, you are on track, or you're in the process of trying to secure a tenure. I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Or you tr- you want to, right? Everybody in the field wants to do that. Yes, so, everyone. Yeah. Do you have like a group chat of like, you know, uh, where y'all talk about these type of things? It's like, yo, this bitch just um straight up like took this position. Yo, how do we, how do we off this? You know what I mean? Like, how do we well, drag her down? I think it's. I think. Um, so I have to say, I think that Afro Latina mm-hmm. academics are doing that on Twitter. Um, mm. And even black mm. academics, black women mm. academics are on Twitter basically talking about their own personal experiences with this person, right. um, but also kind Ooh. of what this means for them. Um, I haven't been in any group chats, but I've been talking to a lot of my friends like individually about mm. it. And we're all just obs- right. obsessed like right. that a person. I mean, this is like the height of white privilege, no? To be able All to right. like go around and do this and then try to orchestrate your own cancellation. Yes. To be like, that part. That part. Especially. I think, yeah, the orchestrate your own cancellation part is definitely, um, yeah, I mean, because this chick knew that the jig is up. So she's just yeah. like, mm-hmm. yo, I'm, you know, hey, say hello to my little friend. You know what I mean? So she's just mm-hmm. kind of going off with the guns drawn. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and PR after this stuff. shit is over, yeah, maybe she, she might even get embraced into another field like who's anti- affirmative action, you know what I mean? Maybe she might get a book deal. You know, there's many different ways. Like, 
You know what I mean? Maybe she could get a podcast in the new Fox network or some shit. I don't know. Like, you know, I mean, I'm not so, worried about her back, lot- but yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, Good but, for her. Okay, so one of the, I mean, I don't know how we are on time, but one of the more, um, the, the smarter think pieces that came out of this whole scandal and I'm like obsessed is was published by Jacobin magazine and they're kind of a far left magazine. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I forget the author's name, but basically they were saying that Jess Krug, Crook was performing this kind of um, idea of blackness, mm. right? This like really crazy stereotype notion of blackness um, mm. that actually the liberal academy um, thrives off of, right? That mm. like fits into this fantasy of who and what black people are for liberal, basically white academics um yeah i mean well-meaning academics yeah totally i mean i I feel like i feel like you know even like in the world of sports journalism rap journalism there's definitely a sense of uh white you know writers that tend to come from more academically savvier backgrounds you know i mean just because of by by default you know a lot of these guys uh just from just from like the type of upbringing that they had, they might have more access to have discourse, right? Like actual sure. like academic discourse. So yeah. you you often see them like wax poetic about athletes, you know, yeah. whether it's like boxers to basketball yeah. stars to, uh, you know, black music. And um, the way these guys and, you know, folks, well, I don't, I don't like to say guys because, you know, that's, that sounds like I'm just describing males, but uh, they tend to do an amazing job of articulating these things to the point that it's so convincing, you know what I mean? Like that I could kind of see how this type of lady could exist and even get a pass in the academic world, uh, specializing in black studies and even trying to front like she is Mm -hmm. black. You know what I mean? But yeah. is this is the case with this lady though? Like, so she's not from the Bronx. She's from so Kansas. She just, oh, Kansas. like she's Kansas, Kansas. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, but I, I was thinking about the Jacobin article and a lot of, I mean, fascinating. I Trisha's point was more not, I guess, yeah, the white, the right, right writer that writes about blackness, but, or just even the way that uh, the reader, right, mm. takes in certain depictions of blackness or like Afro-Latina, like culture, culture, right. It's like, it's like a very liberalized, um, how do I want to say this? It's still like, Oh, it makes me feel good as a white person to read this thing that Mm. it's like, and it's not necessarily, it's like, um, all those movies that come out, right. Like called like, what was it one? Like freedom writers where the white lady goes and like teaches black kids how to write poetry. And then it's like, they're saved now because or the help whatever or yeah no, yeah like, yeah it, like, i mean I think it, like falls in those types of categories of yeah totally. so it's like for her to write this for her and i think you know in our pre-production called um winton trisha and i were having this conversation around like um sorry i just lost my train of thought um what was the conversation about it was about well i think the, what well i think what you're trying to say is that there's this idea of black people as this monolithic group 
And yeah. Jess Krug was performing the idea of black people that a lot of these liberal white academics that are from middle, upper middle class, very wealthy backgrounds kind of assume. And they do this for like East Asian groups as well, right? Sort of this narrative of, mm. well, oh, your parents forced you to play piano and they beat you if you didn't get an A and right. they expect you to be a doctor lawyer. Like, yes. Yeah. A lot of us did grow up like that, but my parents weren't really like, I mean, they right. wanted me to study, but you see what I mean? It like feeds into that, this fantasy of this racialized group that makes right. them. I don't so, know so I got, I got a quick question. I got that a quick makes, question. No, no, that makes sense. That. Yeah. I got a quick question regarding that. So like when I think of whiteness, right. Yeah. You know, for a long time, I just automatically assumed like, yo, you got a swimming pool in your backyard. You know what I mean? Your parents well, like yeah. let you like eat cereal whenever you want. And I'm not talking about like the the Latin American bootleg version of the Cocoa Puff. Like you actually got the real Cocoa Puff. You know what I mean? Like yeah. um, it's very specific. You know what I mean? But like my understanding of whiteness for a long time was 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 coming from uh, some level of economic economic wealth, uh, privilege, uh, uh, you know, any sort of like a like an easy pass where a metro car that gets you through any door. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Uh, but obviously that's not the case, you know what I mean? And, and oftentimes when a lot of us, when we are talking about whiteness, we tend to kind of generalize them as well, right? Like yeah. we are not thinking about like the steel workers that are in like Pennsylvania that's like in the brink of bankruptcy and shit like that. So how do you think that this could be addressed? Like how do, how do we address like... You know, even the term whiteness. Like, so how do we I, even address yeah. that? Like, are we, do we need to be more careful about how we address that as well? Or because the whiteness is still a majority in this country by default, like, we could just say, yo, that's some white shit and we could get a pass for that. So I actually think this is a really important question, and it's something that a lot of people get confused about. So when we talk about individual white people, yes, there's diversity within the white community in terms of class difference, right? Um, right. Or different lived experiences. And so no one's denying that white individual white people have like a hard time or an easy time or whatever. But I think when I say whiteness within this context, I'm talking about white supremacy, not individual white people. Mm. So I think it would be better if I, it might be easier or helpful or useful to be more specific with the words that we used right. um, or use. And so I think what I mean by whiteness is the kind of insidiousness and the violence of white supremacy um, mm. that, you know, on the commercial side, it's like cocoa puffs and leisure and swimming pools and popsicles and whatever. But that also um, stands in for ignorance and violence of the kind of extreme forms of uh, like capital. I, mean, I don't want to sound too academic, well, but well, I think... Well. Go ahead, I was gonna Michael. say even the the cocoa even the even that even that example right like cocoa puffs and swimming pools or whatever you can like that's an individual example but when you think about like I just finished listening to Palace for the People by Eric Kleinenberg mm. right and there's this point where he talks about the privatization right so we talk about like white flight even the pool right like back in the day like there was public pools everywhere but then oh. with the integration of pools that is actually when white people started. Yeah. having houses with pools for themselves, right? So there's like, even like an individual example, like that could be like, yes, each person has their own circumstances. But when you look at like a pool, you could look at the bigger picture on like a bigger, like white supremacy power structure that if you want to talk about like privatization of space and like who gets access to pools, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and even that, so if you look at it, like, I think that's what you're trying to say in terms of like, when we talk about like, th- this is why dress Krug is important, right? Cause the fact that she was able to do this for the longest time is more about the power structures of whiteness and what that allows her to na- mm-hmm. like navigate the world through. Um, and masquerade in this like liberal white idea of what a Afro Latina person is and then have right. her be accepted in that way and no and not be questioned for so long. And it wasn't until like a younger perfect like person that's coming up in the academic world was like, what is this? Like this is weird. Um so that's I think what we're talking about here. And I, I think that's why like as you said, it's like very important to be very specific with words. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, yo, I, I kind of like the fact that you tied in, um, you know, the, the overwaste of American water in the summer times uh, due to white people not wanting to share swimming pools <laughs> with other kids of color. That's, that, that was a dope segue bong. You know what I mean? That shit was beautiful. Ooh. So next time I see a big swimming pool in California, I will remember that. Um, <laughs> but on that note, uh, I mean, yo, we're talking a lot about white privilege. We're talking a lot about how, um, you know, again, like POCs are exploited, uh, in the field of academic academia, but let's talk about the next topic at hand. You know what I mean? Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Before we go there, before we go there, um, Winton dropped a statement from GW department of history your hold up was 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 very like urgent (laughs) like i was like no there there was a statement that that they dropped from september on september 4th um and on the on part of it they said with her conduct dr krug who raised questions about her veracity of her own research and teaching according to the department calls upon dr krug to resign from her position as associate professor of history at gw failing that the department recommends recommends the rescinding of her tenure and termination of her appointment yeah oh shit yes. damn All of you that. know yes so mm-hmm. peace yo i i, peace told, to I have no power Ms. but Crook. co-sign i just i had to put that in. yeah you can go just on cruise peace, peace someone screenshot Crook. her tinder profile by the way which i should have sent to winton to drop <laughs> really yes she was on tinder and some good uh, soul she, like she look like can she get it woman. Okay, she looks like JK. a white woman. Oh, it was it was herself. Like she was out here on the low low on Tinder. Okay. Oh. Anyway. Okay. Anyway. I could see her next topic. <laughs> a little bit. You know what I mean? I could see. Yeah. It. Right. And I'm a Smurf. All right. Yeah. Yeah. She's just she's just Grande the whole situation. Mm. Wait. What? What? Okay. Ariana Grande. They made her look uh, darker. As anyway. They made her look darker. Is okay. All right. I didn't know about that. Um, cool, yo. So we were talking. I was about to mention about um how since we're on the topic of academia, we're gonna talk about how um the situation that happened at the uh, prestigious mm. uh, a museum that is on the meat part is in the meatpacking district right now. A little bit expensive to get in. Um, mm. there's always a line and I fucking hate to go into that place because there really isn't that much to see. They got like a nice little balcony area that's Max. outdoor. You know what I mean? It's good for taking pictures and shit if you have a girlfriend <laughs> or a boyfriend, but that's about it. Uh, yeah. So that museum, yeah. AKA Whitney, uh, decided to cancel an act, uh, exhibition after a black artist called out the museum for purchasing prints at discounted rates without getting the permission of the actual artist. 
So uh, what's, what's happening with this? Can you guys kind of expand on um, what happened exactly? Yeah. So, so there were several black artists that put up some of their, their prints um, as part of a fundraising campaign to raise money for an organization. Um, and they discounted the, their, their prints to a hundred dollars when they're normally like over a thousand dollars because their idea was they would, they want normal, ordinary people to be able to have beautiful art for themselves. And I think that's great. Mm. But, and then the, what the Whitney does, right. Is, uh, the Whitney purchases these prints from the non, from this, from this campaign at the hundred dollar price, just Mm. like as like an, any individual can. And then. I think two weeks before they're about to go live with the exhibition, they sent an email to the artists that they bought prints of and said, by the way, congratulations, you're going to be shown in the Whitney. And then the artist was like, hold up, where'd you get these? And then the artist obviously got upset, right? Because what happens when you do exhibits like this is you purchase art from people at the value, the market value to be able to be shown. Um, in this case, a wit, like a Whitney, right. A, one of the largest institutions, uh, in the U S in terms of art, um, was basically doing the runaround on them. And so they got called out and instead of the Whitney, like trying to maybe like compensate the artists or trying to find a solution for it, they just like, we're just gonna cancel the entire thing. But I think it, it talks about a larger like power structure in terms of art and, you know, POCs in the space, uh, or especially like black artists. Um, and Trish can talk more about that um, just because of her work. Um, and I'm not particularly all in the space, but the Whitney's been in controversy before, right? About yeah. like not showing certain artists back in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, they continue to be on their bullshit. Um, and this is just another uh, case of it. Yeah. And I think um, what they said is like, oh, congratulations. What we're going to offer you in return is a lifetime pass of right. free entrances oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to the Whitney, yeah. which is like, <laughs> no, keep that. Nah, I'm um, good, yo. Yeah. No, fuck that. <laughs> but no. I think like what's so interesting to me about this particular news story is the way in which like, yes, it talks about the art world and like the, over the summer, all of these corporations and institutions are like sending emails about how we're in it together and we're fighting racial inequality together. But then they pull this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let me get this playing. straight. Go ahead. So let me get this yeah. straight. So they decided, so these artists were selling these prints at a hundred a pop and Whitney decided to buy them. And decided so, to have an exhibition of their own? It's my understanding, and I might be wrong about this, but it's my understanding that the Whitney somehow was facilitating basically that um, select artists, black, mostly black artists, um, some established, some newer, uh, would sell prints at $100 and all the proceeds would go out to different funds like the mm. bailout funds mm-hmm. or yeah. so on and so forth. And so, of course, a lot of these artists who um, – are committed to racial equality and in, in you know social change, um, said yes, and then they find out in this really shady way that one of the, re- the the director of research, I think I forget his name, whatever his name is, um, was like, yeah, this is going to go into a show and it's part of our permanent collection now. Um, and so, mm-hmm. repeating what Michael said, they completely purchased or acquired their works at hugely discounted price 
um, when really the normal thing to do is go through a gallery and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. it's read as exploitative and also racist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yep. yo, that's pretty wild. Like how many prints did, like, did they buy? Like, was it like hundreds of thousands of prints or maybe like, I don't know, like 10 Probably. prints and they dropped sure a brand the and then they're was. like, yo, this is going to be now a, a permanent collection. Like where we're going to make lifelong money out of this shit. Yeah. I don't know, but also it's like the arrogance of the Whitney too, of even sending that email, right? Like, like, oh, you are now part of the permanent collection in terms of like, oh, that's the thing that's going to satisfy you and that's the thing that you want. Um, It's like, no, I want to pay my damn bills with the art I make um, and I want to be compensated fairly um, with all these like, yeah, yeah, as as Trish said, like all these companies, all these museums too are like, oh, we believe Black Lives Matter. We support Black artists specifically, right, as an institution. And then you continuously uh, underhand, underhand like black artists or whatever. And, you know, white, like museums like the Whitney or the Met or all these, right, um, are already in these conversations about like the whiteness, the white institution of the museum um, and how it's like hard for artists of color to even get in so mm. it's like adding to that as well um this is a bad look i mean whitney he's yeah like, i no. mean but so like it was the art good did y'all see the art or was it I mean, like the art uh, is good okay okay they're, gotcha. they're good they're talented artists and so uh, i mean it, it makes sense for why the whitney would want to um include right. them it's called collective actions artist interventions mm. in a time of change so it, it makes sense why they would want it in their collection and of course like i mean so be cynical like it makes them look good it makes right. them look woke so, right? so, so so now i got a question regarding um uh, you know, Trisha, like you, you, you also do art curation where you work with art curators, uh, to, to, to a degree, uh, um, you know, my understanding of the art world, and it might be a little different, uh, depending on different types of art, right. Cause there's obviously like, you know, like the traditional museum route, but then there's like modern art, there's like fine art and there's all these different types of so from my understanding, like a lot of these big investments get into play um, really for like tax write-off purposes, right? Because one of the 333 rule of any rich person is have real estate, have stocks. And then the third part is invest in some sort of art and leisure. And that's like owning art, right? So right. one of the scams, or if you want to call it a scam, I just look at it as a system is... Yo, like, I made a hundred mil today. Michael, you're an artist. Go, uh, you know, throw a banana at a wall, and then I'll get Trisha, who's a curator, to say, yo, that was worth a hundred mil. And then I buy it at ten grand, and um, mm. I pretty much like donate mm. it to my own foundation, yep. and I get a hundred mil on tax write-off, mm. right? Mm. So. That's kind of like a system that Mm. obviously exists and, you know, I'm sure is not openly talked about when these Picasso pieces are getting sold for 120 mil and shit. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like so that's kind of like one of my vague understandings of the intricacies of the art world, especially in the fine art world. Um, What what, what is your understanding of that? 
I mean, so you're definitely touching on something that's important, which is the sociology of art. And you're making the point, I think, that as far as modern and contemporary art goes, so it depends on what period of time artworks are made to. That makes a huge difference in terms of the legal issues and so on. But yes, people do prop up value within a certain object, like this phone, for instance, let's pretend it's like something that me as a curator, as an expert, and then some kind of investor with a lot of money deems as inherently um, valuable. And so you just raise up the, the price and you're right that people do buy art in order to evade, like to avoid paying taxes, basically. And there are certain cities that are duty-free ports where you can store your art and mm -hmm. let it accrue in value without ever having to. Michael knows this well. It. I don't yeah. know shit about that. Don't tell me, don't ask me about that. Yeah. All but, right. um, I mean, but, but I will say that whether it is a contemporary or modern piece of art or an ancient artifact, um, they do a lot for like institutional endowments. Um, mm. It's all about money at the end of the day. I mean, it's not all about money, right? But a lot of it is about money. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, and so the other question that I find really interesting is that, that, that I find actually really complex if you want to do like a critique of this system, this becomes complex, but like, when are we gonna allow black indigenous and people of color artists within that system? How are we gonna raise the value of these particular artists work? Um, so it's it's all about at the end of the day, these networks of, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, things, things mm -hmm. are all financial, you know, yeah. politics as usual. And also in a capitalistic system, you cannot, go off on a 6.99 per pound episode without talking about pocket watch i hope there was a special effect <laughs> that just dropped transition very smooth transition <laughs> as always but yo um so pocket watch is uh is a weekly segment where we talk about different financial situations from you know how, how well a company is doing what type of stocks that i feel like you should invest in to now for this particular episode we're going to talk about employment and unemployment you know what i mean the future of unemployment that is happening right now but before we go on uh should we uh shout out to some viewers that are tuning in right now uh yeah is that is that a yes michael all yes, right yes yes so yeah let's let's say what's up to tensile shun what up tensile shun jk's translations transitions 100 percent, 1000 of course kid uh shan wise yee what up what up uh, Snoopy loves Snoopy love is always back at it. Uh, Mia de Karina, she's at NYU. So I guess she's talking about, um, uh, Trisha, uh, mm -hmm. who else we have over here? Uh, okay. We have, we have, uh, we have, of course my pot stickers. Uh, Mr. Ken Stewart is over here. We're Mr. Stewart. Um, yeah, the real Ken dogs. Yo, sub key. Yo, what up, kid? I don't know who you are, Thicker. but yo, much love. <laughs> all right, all right. So yeah, yeah, we we over here. You know what I mean? About fourteen deep. Uh, as we proceed to give you what you need, as we talk about the unemployment situation in America that is happening right now. You know what I mean? So, uh, how's okay? So before we go on, like, how how are you guys doing in terms of like the world, the financial? system the livelihood the employment 
Like, how are you guys coping with this whole situation right now? Trish, um, do you want to start? <laughs> I mean. Well, I have a question yeah. that's unreal. Who calls you Pocket Watch? A couple of my friends. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, it's, who are they? It's a, 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 a nickname that got stuck because uh, I have a group of friends who are mostly artists. Um, they don't really talk about what's happening in the business world as much as I do. And whenever I talk about, yo, like this person made this much or yo, how did this person made this much money or yo, we should look into this stock. Um, you know, so it's, been, it's an ongoing okay. joke. They just like, yo, you're pocket watch. You're watching other okay. people's pockets. It's kind of like derogatory, you know what I mean? But it's, yo, it is what it is. Yo, that's what I do. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, with that said though, like how, how's your, um, employment situation right now? Like is, have you been working from home? Like what's, what's going on? So I'm very lucky that I have employment right now. Um, mm. so I'm very blessed. I count my blessings in that way. Um, I'm able to pay my rent and eat, um, save a little bit too. So again, I'm really, really, really lucky and really blessed. Um, a lot of my work is super solitary anyway. Like the research and the writing part I do by myself and I used to do at my office or like I, I was one of those annoying people at coffee shops, like taking up room. So like I'm at home doing that and things haven't really changed. The biggest difference for me in terms of work is probably teaching. And so I teach 100% online and that's that has its own challenges. But in a nutshell, that's, that's me. Mm, okay. Okay, Michael, how's everything been with you? Um, I am unemployed. I'm on. I've been on unemployment. The six hundred was nice, and then it was gone. So I was able to save some back then. It was like a month ago, I guess. But now right. I am trying to figure out what, how to get more money. Um, different schemes, but you know, I'm still on unemployment doing collecting my yeah, so you just my publicly check. you just publicly uh, admitted that you're about to start a fraud no i didn't say that i said scheme you, you, said a scheme, you could take so scheme any way you want i guess sure i mean i everything's legal here don't come you don't need to come knocking mm. Mm, mm. okay cool tough guy all right uh but <laughs> how, how has that been going for you though like with the whole pandemic situation. I mean, um, do, do you see like a lot more jobs being posted on like ND.com or is it, do you feel like, yo, this is like less, op less ops than ever? Um, I think right in the beginning and when the pandemic and everything shut down, there was definitely a drop and there's places I applied to that were like, oh, we're no longer uh, ex looking for this position or we froze this <laughs> position, know? right? There's, and then there's right, a lot right, of people right. that had hiring freezes until the end of this year. So that was, that was hard to watch. I think there has been an uptick in the last like month or so in terms of just roles as me, like looking at as like production gigs, there's a lot more right. um, because things are opening up obviously. Um, so that's promising, but I mean, it's still tough. I mean, in terms of, I'm thinking about like restaurant workers too. Like right now it's fine cause there's outdoor dining, but then outdoor dining is supposed to end um, October 31st, I think. So right, so like, what what happens at that point um, if there's no in inside dining at all? Um, so we're back right, to the, that right. kind of situation. So yeah, I think there's an uptick for now. I'm a little worried because I think you know the cases continue to rise in the U.S. and I think people have an inflated 
kind of idea about, or maybe a little too, it's good to be hopeful, but I don't know if they're realistic about what needs to happen. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll see. Um, I hope Congress gets their shit together and passes another package for the people, right. not for so giant do, corporations so, and stuff like that. So hold up. So hold up. So you are for an, an additional 600 weekly or are you like, okay with this, uh, you know, I guess the decision that they came up with is going to be like an additional 300. I think that they should do an additional 600. Um, I just hated the argument that the Republicans were, some of the Republican lawmakers were talking about in the sense of like, oh, we can't give people 600 a week because that will incentivize them to stay home. Um, Because it's like people are making, because they're like, oh, people make more than they normally did by getting 600 a week extra. I was like, how sad are we as a nation that our minimum wage laws are to a point where people are now making more money. And like, in terms of like incentivizing people to work, it's like people are trying to just get by off this money. Um, and it's like this, you know, the, with the Reagan welfare queen is like imagery is still alive and well in American politics. And, um, that continues to perpetuate and like not allow us to like but provide the services that- for essential workers. <laughs> Is okay. it a point to like stay home though? Like that is the incentive. Yes, the incentive is to stay home. That too. I guess, yeah, you, people have money. Yeah, so people don't. have money to be able to stay home. That's another like, big thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm, yeah. Mm. So uh, since August, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, the GOP has been pushing, especially Mr. Trump, is um, they say, you know, 1.4 million jobs got picked back up um, in August. Uh, unemployment rate is now down to 8.4%, which is, uh, I mean, it's still a very significant number, but compared to like what happened in March when it was a significant drop, uh, went in, I, I believe there's a chart that I put in there. If you could share that with the people, uh, like 11%, right. And then it went down to eight. Trump took off when yeah, Trump yeah, took yeah. office, it was 4% unemployment. I think. Uh, no, nah, well, I mean, no, it was actually a little bit higher than that. But Trump's office definitely increased jobs. But also, like, if you think about it, so yeah, if you look at it right there, what like top, you know, type of jobs. Yeah, the type. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's off up for up to debate. But uh, there was definitely a job uptick in 2020, and then there's a significant job drop that happened, and now unemployment is at about. Uh, 8.4%, which is still a very significant number, but it kind of matches that around when the recession was still ongoing. Um, so yeah, I mean, for the most part, it seems like, okay, like there's a little bit of normalcy that is coming back. But, uh, you know, I think one of the topics that a lot of people are addressing is dif- different industries that are being affected Right. So a lot of POCs, especially uh, people that live in these urban centers, they work in these um, they call it like uh, they call like basically the type of job that I guess like what Trisha has would be a knowledge based work compared Mm -hmm. to a job that is in a service industry. It's just like I don't know the proper term for it, but it's yo, it's like hardcore physical labor. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And those type of jobs are significantly cut out because the actual platforms that provide these type of employments are no longer in function. Like if you don't have a restaurant, 
no more and then you were employing 30 to 40 people at any given time those jobs are all gone you know and yeah. um you know and these type of people they can't work from home and um a lot of these guys are stuck in this city urban to uh, urban you know urban areas so you definitely have seen i wouldn't say the white flight just yet but a lot of people as soon as the pandemic hit they just kind of you know, moved out of the city, got into their summer homes, maybe decided to buy a property in upstate New York. Uh, and I'm sure it's a similar case for all across the country. So with that said, how do you guys feel it's going to, what, what do you guys think it's going to happen in the next year or so, or maybe in two years? Obviously we don't have like a crystal uh, ball that we could see what's going to exactly happen, but it just seems like specifically people in the service industry and a lot of them happen to be of POC background are going to be affected more so than ever. You know, there, a lot of these folks might not have a job for at least another six months or maybe even a year or maybe even longer. Um, what do you, what do you guys think it's going to happen to these cities, uh, with this, uh, with the, with the situation that is happening? Well, I think, um, a lot of it has to do with just the way that our public spaces have been completely reconfigured. And so people are trying to just figure out how do you, um, cause the service industry requires a public and there just isn't really that mm. public has, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm no labor or economy expert, but this is from my, what my understanding is, but even if this pandemic ends, right. I think, um, the, there's an article that Donnie Kwok mentioned last week on, um, like sweatpants or something. And it was basically yeah. talking about yeah. the fashion industry and the garment industry and how, um, I read that article and essentially basically what was already happening is just accelerated by COVID. Right. Of so, course, yeah. um, the, you know, they say that FedEx is planning to hire 70,000 workers to help with deliveries. Like that's great, but there are self-driving cars and trucks and the automation of different labor practices. And so the question that I have is not just for the moment of COVID, but long after COVID, yep. what are we going to do for people who um, whose, whose livelihoods really depend on their employers, but their mm. employers are trying to cost overhead, uh, cut overhead costs. And so this re just, you know, reminds me of things that politicians like Andrew Yang have talked about in terms of automation, UBI, universe, UBI yep. income, or, you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC and Elizabeth Warren about providing universal health care. Like yeah, 1, these things that we rely on, um, you know, are, are not stable. And so to me, the question is not only like, what is the future of work, but also what is a future system that we can imagine in which people, especially people of color can live? Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, so I think that sweatpants topic, I think it was shared by me, not Donnie, but you know, go check out. Oh, no, it was, it was Donnie. It was Donnie. It was Donnie. Okay. It was Donnie. It was, it was Donnie. Cause about. I rewatched it, it this you. morning. I'm just, calm down, man. I was talking about Gap. So I just assumed that it was about that. You know what I mean? About poop. It was during that segment yeah, though. Know? Yeah. I'm just trying yeah. to make yeah, sure. Like about e-commerce, you know what I mean? Becoming a proof of concept that, yo, it's going to be less, all, less actual physical workers. So tying it back to how it affected um, the small businesses that I'm part of. So, uh, you know, like this pandemic has really been a true proof of concept, man, for, for the e-commerce world. You know what I mean? Like we cut down on retail hours and, um, we don't need as many staff. 
So there's obviously way less overhead. Um, all you need is just like a consistent, minimal uh, staff to just upkeep the warehouse or ship out online orders. So we're still like maintaining profit. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, even the pre-existing staff, they got their hours cut. So as a business, it actually has been, of course, it's been hard because, you know, the overall sentiment is, okay, we got to spend less and save more. So in that sense, it's been difficult. But in terms of like how things are going to be operating in the in the future, uh, those type of roles that require some sort of like physical work, yo, it's becoming less and less significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Trish, you did mention automation. You did mention uh, UBI. You did mention universal healthcare. These are all very important things that uh, in order for the future of this country or the world actually everywhere because if you even if you look at like chase bank or any of these Mm. big banks you know you don't even have to see a teller to deposit you know like a significant amount of check anymore like you could just use like these automated systems uh that that are like smarter than atms now right so um yeah it's, it's definitely an interesting time to live in i mean the type of work that we do right so i'm a marketer uh, Michael, you're a producer. Trish, you're a professor. Uh, do you think that the jobs that you know involve the type of work that we do, do you think those could also be replaced? Uh, it could be automated that they don't need people like us anymore to like run these type of operations. Do you think that they will come as well? No, absolutely not. No? Nah? Why do you say so with so so much certainty? No. How are you going to um, automate professorship? Or you can't yeah, well, what automate if, like, what if you just production like, of knowledge. Study yeah. like algorithm and be like, yo, like you want this, and then you just kind of feed them that. Well, I mean, I mean, but I don't know. Who's creating the content? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, we're. I mean, yes, we're going into a world where big data and and algorithms and how things like maybe like knowledge might be disseminated in those ways, but. As Trish said, it's like who makes those algorithms, um, and that's I think the fallacy of algorithms, and I think the fallacy of people trying to like find like salvation with with big data and algorithms is that like algorithms are not perfect at all. Data is just data without any context, without anyone looking at it um, and creating a story around it. Um, and also like the proliferation of like the professional class and people that are just at like McKinsey or BlackRock that are like you know, this, this quarter we have X, Y, Z, and then this is, you know, and you fail to look at the human element of these things. And that's what I'm scared of as we move forward. Um, the, our humanity is lost. I think and a lot of this is like, Oh, like we want as a business, we want to cut down on the bottlenecks. We want to cut down on the things that we lose money on. Um, and that in that pursuit, we're creating robots of ourselves. Um, and, I guess that might be, I don't know how dark that is really, but I don't, I don't want to live in a world that's like that. Um, I don't know if this is the main topic we're talking about, but in, I think in terms of like, for me, like producing, like producing at the end of the day is like a human relationship thing, right? Um, it's like bringing people together and getting people to come together on a vision and decide to do this and keep people motivated and on task. And, you know, it's a lot of mind games. So I, I don't, an algorithm will not, 
I mean, I guess you could have an algorithm that's like, I will optimize for JKeys work style and this algorithm will send emails or send text messages at the optimal time to get him to do things. Um, I don't know if there would be any algorithm that would be able to do that to the degree a human brain can. So for me, I think that won't go away in that aspect. I just don't think that um, a robot can do what I do. And, and mm. I don't mean to sound arrogant. This is not a statement of arrogance. It's just the kind of work that I do, the kind of knowledge and the kind of critical reasoning that I do is not something that I think you can train a computer or a machine to do. Um, and so, you know, there are legit discussions we can have about the sort of neoliberalization of the university, right? The corporate university and how, mm. um, like you know, the way that we disseminate knowledge or the kinds of ways that we think and envision a professor's role are changing. Yes, those are valid, but I don't think um, teachers can be replaced by computers at all. Like, mm. no, not at all. Got you. Well, I mean, um, I, I do think that it is a, a big discussion that is being held, but I do believe that a lot of things that we thought that it couldn't happen has already happened. So I would never, I, you know, I like to say never say never, you know, because uh, yeah, I'm actually a robot. What kind of, I mean, then yeah, it begs to differ. Exactly. It begs to ask the question, like, what kind of world do we want to live in? Yes, like we. It's not about what kind of world that we want to live in, because the world that we living in right now is not a world that we decided to shape. It's already been existing and has been uh, it's been already being molded the way that people well, that are way beyond our control. I know, I'm not. Yeah, I'm. So. I'm not talking about like an individual level. I mean, like, I think, right, like, I, in the sense, right, we, yes, I guess we're at the forces of certain things, but I think I, it, I want, I would love people to feel as if they have a collective power to sit down and be like, is this what we want? Like, there is technology that can do these things, but let's get together and have conversations around like what do we want the world to look like um because the alternative is just to like let businessmen and let Technocrats like people that run big companies just be like this is what you know this is what is going to be and i'm going to take away your job and i'm going to do these things and i think that's part of right like organizing and community like if you have a strong community like that really understands each other those like when you when these things come up it's like okay like let's have a conversation about it and i don't I hope that we can move toward that. I know a lot of young people are having those, like, right, Gen Z is like, right, like this is the world our parents and boomers and millennials have left us. It, it is quite shitty. Let's talk about, like, where we talked about is, like, universal healthcare. Like, when we talk about knowledge-based economies, it's like, okay, like, not everyone has Wi-Fi. Like, access to computers. If we, like, gut public libraries, then, like, who can access, like, a lot of low-income people use, like, those computers and if people don't have access to those books and those computers like who's going to be left behind and like these are the conversations I'd, I'd rather be having other than like you know not just like what is the new innovative thing like that's going to allow me to make a burger really quick right but i think it's also that um again like not all things are mutually exclusive like the reason why gen z exists is because of the internet the reason why they exist is because of social media. The reason why they have this knowledge, the reason why they have all this information on why the world is so fucked up is because of everything that you listed as 
something that could be problematic, you know? Like, even like five years ago, I couldn't take an Uber to go anywhere I wanted. Yeah, Uber's bad. It killed a cab system in New York City. But because of that, we were able to produce a lot more events and maybe we're able to have certain type of gatherings. So it's, it's, it's really difficult to say because, um, I mean, I know I mentioned this guy before on this pod, uh, this guy, Masason, who is the founder of SoftBank, who has significantly invested in many tech companies like Uber, WeWork, and so on and so forth. Like his whole thing was, yo, we need to live in a world where automation is going to make our world better. That was his whole argument. He sounded like some fucking evil mad scientist. You know what I mean? But I mean, when I first read what he said, I was like, yo, this motherfucker is crazy. Somebody needs to stop this guy. But the more I think about it, we're already been on that route. And there's whether we like it or not, human beings, and I'm not as idealistic or uh, optimistic about human nature. We're lazy. You know, we're lazy I, and selfish. You know what? People, you know what I mean? Pocket watch. So. Pocket watch. I I need to um, push back a little on that because mm. I agree with you. I think that technology and we automation to a certain degree has democratized knowledge. Gen Z can now like universal healthcare, like you know, on TikTok and whatever, and it's great. But um, I think the reason why Gen Z is able to, you know be not only tech savvy, but also talk about these big issues in meaningful ways is because the way in which um, it's it's all around these ethical and moral conversations, right? So what the humanities and arts teach you that a robot can't teach you. Mm -hmm. Um, You can feed in like, you know, uh, lines from like Ocean Vuong's new latest novel into a machine and it can read it to you, but you can't teach a machine to, um, in a nuanced way, explain the kind of ethics and the ethical stakes and the moral Mm. dilemmas behind that work. And so I think like technology is great. Technocrats, they are doing what they're doing. They're, they're keeping time they have their pocket watches and that's great. But (laughs) Like, I think there are serious questions and conversations that we need to have as a society or as a collective about um, what are the ethics behind it, um, in what cases is surveillance and mining of people's individual data problematic. I mean, I think these are all, you know, I think there's good and bad, and I think it's a lot of... Totally. I mean, of course, you know, there's always the yin and the yang, and um, I agree with all these points. I mean, um, I do believe I was shocked when AlphaGo was able to defeat a Go master. You know, what I mean, oh, it yeah. was kind yeah, of like crazy. a tipping point for me to believe that, OK, we're at that point of no return at this point. Machines are eventually going to take over a certain type of narrative that is going to forever take over what we define as humans. But it's mm-hmm. also something that we created It's not something that just generated yeah. on its own. It's not. It's not like an evolutionary thing that happened on its own. You know, yeah. these things are something that we have altered. So, you know, you reap what you sow. That's how well, I'm going to yeah. put it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think Trish said, yeah, wait, I mean, Trish said, said I agree with Trish because I, I, she said it way better than I, I just, I try to say it. Uh, that, that's the thing. I think when I think about like AlphaGo or I think about these people that are uh, like engineers or even scientists really, um, think a lot of times in even Silicon Valley, you get caught up in like, oh, this thing is so cool. Like, look at this thing I can do with this like algorithm or whatever without talking about the moral 
and ethical implications of it. And I think See, we get okay. caught up in the coolness of new technology. So I, don't, I don't think ethical, moral is all relative. You know, like what's ethical to you might not be. No, no, I'm saying, yeah, I, I understand that point, but I'm, I'm just saying that I don't think we even, they, those people even think about it. Or the general public doesn't think about it. We just intake things very quickly. I think a lot of these guys that, and I say guys specifically because a lot of the, you know, founders of these giant tech companies tend to be guys. Uh, Many of them have God complexes, you know what I mean? And I I don't think it necessarily stems from a place of malice. It stems from a place of having white man's confidence that yo like me putting this out into the world is going to make this world a better place a safer place a more convenient place and in that quest of that uh you know they kind of discover where a lot of the negativity kind of follows on uh, follow along with it i mean there's an ancient not an ancient story but i think is it like a german scientist or some shit his name was faust like in his quest yeah. for knowledge he decided to sign with the devil you know what i mean yeah, I ever heard yeah. about this story. So yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I kind of look at it like that. You know what I mean? Like, because even JP, like, yeah, yeah. But Jake, can I ask you a question? This yes. is like a really crass analogy, but like, an algorithm is essentially um, a bunch, of, from my very basic understanding, a bunch of ones and zeros to create a world, to create right. a representation or a world in the way that a painting or literature or words do, and it's also a technology, right? So, I I wonder then like guns exist, AR rifles exist, or what's it called? Automatics, what, AR rifles, automatics. is that what you call it? Yeah. Automatic know, rifles? I don't know, I'm a gun. Automatic. But like automatic rifles exist, right? Right. It's a technology in and of itself. A gun isn't like, a, it's, it's, it has to be engaged by a human actor. Mm-hmm. How you engage with that particular technology, I think, is a question that we need to have. How do we regulate that technology? In mm-hmm. what ways do we create communities and of care and um, educational, I don't know, opportunities to sort of teach people when and how and if we should even be employing and mobilizing these technologies? And from my, from where I'm sitting as just like, you know, like sitting in my apartment, <laughs> um, I don't know, like where are those conversations around the technocratic world happening. Um, There are think tanks, there are a lot of artists and and thinkers and scholars that are doing really interesting work, but I mean on a more public, right? right, Kind of national level. That's what I'm saying. No, you're totally right. I mean, that's why they're being grilled at hearings right now, right? Um, You know, we'll see what the outcome is, but I kind of would like to segue. I mean, we could talk about this a lot more, you know what I mean? Because uh, I would like to say for the six ninety nine per pound audience, you know what I mean? JK is all about righteousness. And um, I'm, yo, listen, I'm like trying to listen to all sides. And um, I, I definitely lean on a personal opinion closer to, yo, machines are evil. But the ine- inevitable rise of machines is also unavoidable. So that's kind of like my perspective on it. But when we're as we're talking about uh, checking people, for what they're doing in terms of technology to invention to uh, checking people in the past for their historic deeds. Uh, let's talk about Trisha's next segment, um, the guest segment. She's going to tell us a little bit about something that is very important that is being discussed and analyzed right now, which has to mm. do with uh, celebration and representation of historic figures in public spaces. 
Yes. So thank you for that 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 segue, that lead-in. Um, as you mentioned, as mm. JP Pocket Watch mentioned at the top of the show, I am an art historian and a curator. And so I'm really interested not only in what happened in the past, um, but also how people remember the past and what that implies for our communities and ourselves and education and our futures and so on. And so this past summer, we've seen this, I'll call it a trend, where um, people are doing really interesting things with statues and monuments. So a lot of protesters as well as cities are taking down statues, flags, um, renaming sidewalks and street names. Um, But also in response to the COVID pandemic, they're putting masks on statues. So what this means for us is that um, statues and symbols and things aren't just public space, that is, isn't just sort of this passive backdrop through which we walk and we do do our daily lives, um, but that in some weird way, they at least try to reflect who we are as a community. And sometimes people within a community disagree with who we want to be and who we think we are um, based on the kinds of narratives of the past, as well as symbols from the past and figures from the past we choose to highlight in public space. So. I have um, a bunch of points that I'd like to, you know, like a little outline of, of topics and subtopics that I want to cover. But my first question that I wanted to ask you all is, as you're walking through your neighborhoods throughout the different boroughs of New York City or New York, um, do you notice public art or monuments or street names or mm. how do you navigate your public spaces on a daily basis? That's actually a very good point because... Um... For instance, like you live near NYU, uh, mm-hmm. Astor Place, for instance, right? Astor Place, uh, Cooper Union. These are all, you know, the House of Astor. You know, it was a, 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 I would say, I mean, you know, in the United States, they didn't really have a nobility, but it was, you know, these motherfuckers were rich as fuck. You know what I mean? So the whole reason why yes. the, the part of Queens is called Astoria, because that entire piece of land were even more encompassing was their hunting ground. Is where they would go on the weekends to hunt and chill, whatever, do wild shit. And these motherfuckers like lived right there in that whole area. That was their land. That was their uh, where they kept their indenture servants. You know what I mean? Astor Place. So uh, even like Rockefeller Center. I mean, who owned it? Rockefeller. You know, one of the uh, last real tycoons of the American history. Uh, you know, like there's actually a cross street in Wall Street called Dwayne Reed. You know, it's literally Dwayne and Reed. And um, that kind of has like a lot of historical significance. So, Mm. but obviously in recent times with um, so many of these public statues uh, are portrayals of past historic figures in America. And if you were a rich white man in the 1800s where in the late 1700s, it's almost inevitable that you've had slaves. So mm-hmm. a lot of these statues are now being targeted or being removed. So I just thought that was an interesting thing that is happening right now because I've always felt uncomfortable about seeing like George Washington and shit. Like when I go to mm. DC, like, yo, this motherfucker was, was, you know, was a slave owner or even having like the Thomas Jefferson Memorial. I always kind of felt a little weird about these things, but it's interesting that these things are now being called out. Michael, like, yeah. what are what are some of your thoughts? Well, I mean, I mean, when JQ was talking, I was my question I had for JQ was how did how did you? I think this speaks to more of what 
just want to talk about is like how did you find like learn aster was like what it was or like cooper union was what it was because i you know when you walk around public spaces um if you don't know the context of it then you you just it's just a plaque it's you know like i live in crown heights area right and there's a lot of murals public art murals commission pieces of jackie robinson right and if you could just right. walk past them and be like Oh, cool! It's Jackie Robinson. But then, that's where you actually Dodger Stadium. Yeah, yeah. But if you like did a little digging, it's like, oh, there's a actually like a big housing project right where the old Brooklyn Dodgers Stadium was. And there, if you go up to that building, there is a plaque and there's a like a uh, a plate, home plate on the ground. Um, But it's so inconspicuous in a like a garden that you wouldn't be able to find it. So, I think it's very easy for us to just walk past certain things and like naming streets, like certain things stand out more Um, obviously like Rockefeller center or things that are named. And I think um, those are in the public imagination more, but I think there's like monuments everywhere, uh, street names, even like think about like black lives matter being painted on the ground and like Bed-Stuy and DC and like all those things. So um, I mean, yeah, it can be, it can be a symbol. Um, if you can do the research and there's like a public discussion about the symbol. And I think that's what's happening more and more now um, in terms of the Confederate statue that you walk past not now like means something to you because it like that history is like brought up to the forefront more and more. Yeah. It's an enduring trace or it's enduring. It's an enduring like signature of a particular kind of perspective or a particular kind of power dynamic that I think is um, what a lot of people find issue with. Mm -hmm. And I think Michael, you said something really interesting about kind of not really noticing these things that they just become so absorbed in your environment that it's easy to just not notice that they're there. But when you start looking and noticing, you see all these like crazy, like why is Crown Heights called Crown Heights? Why is Queens called Queens, Brooklyn? Why is Manhattan the only kind of leftover of indigenous kind of presence here in this region? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's a lot of questions, but what, what I'm most interested in is, okay, cool. There's this like sort of spectacle sort of sexiness about racist statues toppling and, and that's important. Um, but what replaces them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you reactivate these public spaces and also who decides, especially during a pandemic mm-hmm. and especially when public funds are so limited, who decides what goes up and when, right? Yeah. Um, So there are two kind of examples that I pulled out very recently. um, The first statue memorial to historic women was put up in Central Park to the Mm. suffragettes. Yes. Um, And it was welcomed with a lot of fanfare. But the story behind this is quite interesting because when the sculptor Meredith Bergman initially um, designed it with the support of another nonprofit called Monumental Women, um, they only included Elizabeth Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who were suffragettes, but who Mm. notoriously were only fighting for white women's votes. Mm. so after, yeah. so a lot of people started to say, "Hey, wait, what a minute! Like, who decided this?" And so they ended up including Sojourner Truth. And so this memorial is this kind of um, imagined scenario of what it might have looked like if all three of these women were like <laughs> buddy buddy. And then mm-hmm. the other thing that I find really interesting is that um, 
And the Chinatown Art Brigade, um, headed by a lot of fantastic artists, including Tomi Arai and um, my colleague slash friend Diane Wu, I think, is involved um, with Chinatown Art Brigade. But what they've found is that there are a lot of buildings um, that are part of Chinese American, Asian American history and heritage that aren't being protected, that aren't given landmark status, mm. which means there's no money to go into preservation. Right. Um, there's more incentive for people to come in and develop and gentrify this space. And that this is ridiculous and problematic because over the past decade, we know that the government has invested 40 million taxpayer dollars into preserving and conserving Confederate monuments and statues Ooh. and buildings and so on. So it's, so you see what I mean? Like it's yeah. you, the, the saying of putting your money where your mouth is. And so there are a lot of issues around what goes up next, who decides and right. where's the money going to come from. Exactly. So, so I open it up to you too. Yeah. Yeah. So quick question. Uh, you know, some of these, like, like I said earlier, like, you know, I kind of always had issue with like looking at a George Washington statue or sure. any white man statue that was active in like the 1700s or 1800s, because you're going to find something that is not kosher for a 21st century standard. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, let's say, I don't know, like you get like a Michael Jackson statue, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe 10 years ago before the documentary came out. Uh, right. you know, people are still saying that, like, yo, is a, you know, these, these guys are lying. The, uh, alleged victims sure. are lying, you know? So there's a lot of sure. debates about that. Uh, there's no denying that Michael Jackson had hits and he has influenced a lot of people, but of course, as a human being, he's had faults. Right. And mm -hmm. maybe like a hundred years later, like him openly, disregarding his blackness by bleaching his skin is going to be deemed as the ultimate trait of a sellout, right? And they're going to look at that shit like, yo, this motherfucker was mad problematic. I don't give a fuck how hot like his music was. Like, why are we even like celebrating this dude? You know? Uh, okay, maybe Michael was not even the best example, but like, let's say even Denzel Washington, right? Like, you know, he said the F word and I don't mean well, like- I mean you know what I mean? Like, so there's all these things that you could kind of use yeah, against these people. Point. And I'm just asking, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with removal of Confederate leaders in these Southern states. Right. But where yeah. is like, what's the barometer? Like, how do you decide a statue yeah. is okay? And how do you decide a statue is not okay? Well, I think, well, this, I th oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So no, 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 Michael, I want to hear I, from you. Oh no. I just, I, I think this going from your article, I think this begs the, I think about like what is the relationship people have with statues, mm. right? And you 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 write like putting up the statue and it being there is one thing, but the, how the public reacts to it and has discourse around it is the mm. is the second part. Um, and I think about like the Confederate statues and like right um, is like the Daughters of the Confederate were an organization that were very keen on um, preserving like the stories of these soldiers or, you know, and educating or like keeping alive the history of those things. So they mm. went around and commissioned yeah. these statues, a bunch of white people. And then I think about Chinatown and the fact that there's not a lot, not a lot of those buildings or landmark buildings or no plaques or no, there's not a lot of discussion around them is like who, like, do they have the power to advocate for their own history yeah. 
and within the city government itself um, and even having that conversation um, and even like the central park one, it's like, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I would, I would be curious about like <laughs> the actual formation of those, like the power structures mm-hmm. within like the decisions they made around like who sits where, or how they're like positioned yeah. within the statue itself. Yeah. Um, so there's, I think, and, and I, and to wrap it up, it's like, go down back to the point JK was saying about like who, we put up and not put up and is like i don't the, i think the problem with the confederate statues is they're up but then the people that want them don't right like from in my eyes like they don't have a complete understanding of who those people are right and like well no i actually think they have a 1100 percent accurate understanding of who those people are well, I not, think that's well the in the problem. sense of in yeah. the sense of like they think how do i say this like they well, I guess yeah. I guess it is like a ob- objectivity. Like I guess that. So you to think? Your point. So you, yeah. So you think their perspective is skewed? Well, that, that I was like, that's that was the thought I was having in my head. I was like, well, and, and Trisha's point is like uh, they know, and I'm like, oh, like I just I I guess now the public has changed its view on them. Yeah, right. Right. I actually, but the, the, that's a really important point. I like I I think both of what you said both of what Jakey pocket watch and Michael hey, um, hey, you can call saying, me Jakey. You know what I mean? My pocket watch I name is, only, pocket is watch. only for the segment. You know what I mean? All right. But can I please? No. Oh, um, I might right. change your name on my phone to that. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm just, it's just bringing some levity. Um, but so, so this is the thing is that people's minds change through time. To right. your point, JK, and also to Mike, and also to Michael's point, people's minds about figures and events and ideas change through time. Like it wasn't only it was like fifty or seventy years ago where everyone was like, "Yeah, we should intern all the Japanese people. That's a great idea." Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, right. and they're still doing that to a certain extent with people on the southern border. But my point is, is that that's why I feel that um, you know monuments need a review process Mm. like every like five or 10 years in the way that we look at some laws in the textbook and we're like, yeah, we don't need this anymore or we need new laws to address new issues. Um, I think that it always needs to, your public spaces always need to reflect Mm. what your community wants and what your community thinks. And I think that's part of the issue. Mm. Um, And then to the other point about like, okay, Michael Jackson, well, Then and and even like these three ladies of these three suffragettes, it's like, should we even be hero like memorializing hero historic hero figures anymore? Like, yeah. what is the point mm, of that? That was my because next <laughs> all of these movements, the suffragette movements, um, for instance, Michael Jackson's career, like, yes, Michael Jackson is incredible as an artist, genius, some might even say. But there's so much labor and so many people um, that went behind into creating Michael Jackson. And there's so many women and activists who went, um, who helped bring the suffragette, the women's vote, the black women's vote, the Asian women's vote, the indigenous women's vote to light, right? Right. So it's like, it erases Mm. or effaces a lot of labor and a lot of people. So it's like, how do we even begin to... Like, what is a monument culture? Like, right. can mm. we leave that behind? Mm. Yeah. Mike dropped. Exactly. That's, no, I, I agree with that. Point. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, you know, I'm definitely going to need a monument when I die. But uh, 
You know, I'll leave that up to my one big pocket watch. Exactly. <laughs> a big pocket watch. I mean, exactly. I don't Not, know. But, uh, yo, I, I mean, listen, um, I think, you know, monument culture exists because the descendants of, you know, particular, it could be direct descendants or just descendants of these people's ideology. They believe mm-hmm. that um, it needs to be celebrated because for yeah. whatever reason, they think, that this person's deeds while they were here in the physical form has influenced True. and impacted us in a, in a, in a bigger form than we could imagine. Right. Um, sometimes it's nationalistic, uh, when, you know, cause someone who's a criminal in Korea, a war criminal in Korea could be celebrated in Japan and vice versa. Vice right? versa. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Vice versa. Like a terrorist Absolutely. to the Japanese people could be a hero to the Korean people. So yeah, it's it's all relative, it's all perspectives. Um, but do I think that the monument culture, whether it's in the same format or not, going to cease to exist? I don't think so. Of course. You know what I mean? I, I think that. human beings like they love themselves too much. You know what I mean? They <laughs> they love death. their because yo, think about it, right? Like us making babies, right? And how much we love our own babies. Because yo, this fucking baby is a reflection of me. It's a clone of me. It has my DNA. And that shit yeah. is like essentially just passed down from generations. So you're gonna want to see a piece of you somewhere down the line. And that's how much we love each other. Like that's how much yeah. we love ourselves. So do I really think that? Uh, uh, the, the next Steve Jobs, the next uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, or whoever the fuck, you know, some of these like world class inventors were decision makers. They're gonna be like their descendants, where people influenced by them is just gonna like, yo, like we're done with monuments. They're gonna come up with some other shit. Like I don't know, like mm-hmm. a, a permanent well, hobby. Yeah, you know I, what I mean, like to, whatever it is. But to Trisha's point, I like Trisha's point about um, like the other part of monument culture where it's like who gets memorialized, right? Um, when like people within like these movements or any of these things happening, there's a lot of people that went into it. It's like this, the, obviously the figureheads always get the, the praise and people want to look at them. But if you actually look at, right. Like a lot of times, um, even like making any, like, let's say media, like any like video or any, uh, like a podcast or live stream is like so many people get are part of the process, Involved. but like, how are people like who, who gets to like be seen as like the leader of it and like, or like gets the most praise, right. Is very arbitrary or, right. and like, like a popular, not a popular contest, but it's like very calculated. It can be very calculated in a way. Um, so I, in terms of that, I'm thinking about monument culture. I mean, cause the whole time, I mean, this when we brought up this topic, I was like, "Is this or monuments even needed?" And and like Jake to Jakey's point, I think you're right in terms of people always want to memorialize themselves, and I think there is a notion of wanting to cheat death and want to live forever in that way. Um, but yeah, it's the, it's very interesting to think about. And um, there was a I think there's a chat that came in. Um, I think we get to it. Ten Ten Saishun, um it says, I wonder, Shun, Tinsou Shun, I wonder how that, ref- so I, the question is, I wonder how that reflects on society's tendency towards sugarcoating history, RE, Washington Monument, Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth Statue, mm. Jefferson Memorial. Um, Trish, if you want to respond. Yeah. No, I think that's such a, 
important question. And that's why um, going back to the last segment or the last question around robots um, is that we need humans and we need people to continually press upon these dominant narratives um, and to kind of think about, okay, who do these narratives serve? Because I'm not going to like sit here and pretend that like what I do with my Queens project, right, with Queens Who Rule isn't serving a particular audience, which is to say girls and women of color, Mm -hmm. right, who um, don't get statues, who people – for to whom they can trace their ancestry or people that they look like we don't get statues excuse me mm-hmm. um and so i think to kind of create to address that directly like that that's definitely you know to, to the commander's point, that's definitely serving a narrative. I don't know that I'm sugarcoating history. It's just that I'm adding another kind of perspective to the historical narrative that I think right. is important and deserves highlighting. Well, I, I don't know. Well, I think about, I guess it's in terms of when you say that, right? Like for you, the perspective is I want to uplift these people because I want like women of color to be seen and memorialized in that way. Um, but yeah. when I think about like, who decided the Washington Monument? Who decided Jefferson? Right? It was all these like white men that were like, these are the people we want to uphold. And I think this begs the question of like now, right? Like who is the audience? Um, right. Who is speaking up? Is like a, a lot of like uh, people of color, um, you know, just like being like these people that you have put up as monuments don't vibe or don't, and I say vibe, but don't, I don't agree with like this like perspective that you have of like putting memorializing these people. So then when that happens, when that conversation starts happening, right. Then we have like the roads, uh, what's his name roads, uh, in the UK get toppled into the, the river. Yeah. Um, you have all these Confederate monuments, right. Cause to these people, to POCs, it's like, these people mean something else to other than the, like the white men sees right. these people in different ways. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I guess the consensus is fuck monuments, but it's going to be inevitable for a long time to come. That seems to be the general consensus. Uh, but yeah, I mean, mm. you know, even though we are not forced at 699 per pound, we don't really want monuments, it seems. Uh, <laughs> we do commemorate and celebrate those of us that have contributed to the pod and those of us that are friends and fam with the pod and especially those of us who has built the pod. So with the next segment, we have possibly the last who the fuck is Michael segment uh, with our very own Michael Ken Stewart. Do you want to lead it off? Yeah. Oh, well, now it's real. Um, so, yeah, for this week's who the fuck is Michael? Um, I gave the announcement last week, but um, I am saying goodbye after two years of working on 699. So I'm going to be stepping away after this show is fully distributed out in the world. Um, but with that, I want to talk about how I got involved with 699 because I think um, it's been a fun ride. And I hope that you know my story resonates with anyone watching or listening. So... Mm. I actually, so this relation, this, this whole thing started with a relationship. I like Jakey and I created after meeting him at um, a bad rap screening in Williamsburg. Um, the, he was going to go uh, talk at or show the movie at Cornell the next day. 
Um, and I knew this because the people that um, put it together um, were, I was in co- communication with. So I used that to talk to him. Um, and then over that next year, he, I took some meetings with him, uh, gracious enough to like have me speak to him. I think the very first email I ever sent to him, I sent like a wall of text to him. And he's like, Jakey, just text our emails back, write this again and then send it back. And I was like, okay, sure. Let's do that. Um, so from there, um, I saw that Jakey was doing a podcast, uh, through Instagram. And for some odd reason, I was like, I'm just going to ask if I can sit in on a recording. So I ended up sitting on a, in a recording, uh, for, uh, Jay Lee, who's a chef. Um, and I forgot which episode it was, but talks about being a chef and his rise through the New York culinary world. Um, and it was awesome to sit, sit in and just be part of that. And then after the show, I basically told Jakey and Jojo that I could help any way they can, any way I can. And then about a month went past and I was like, oh, I wonder if they, they still need someone. And I was looking at their podcast feed and they hadn't released an episode in a month. So I was like, they probably need help. <laughs> but I was kind of hesitant on hitting them back because I didn't want to look too uh, thirsty out here, I guess is better, <laughs> lack of a better term. Um, and then one day, Jakey hits me up and is like, yo, you want to help with a pod? Um, and I showed up to another recording and then we went to dinner afterwards and he was like, you want to produce it? I was like, uh, yeah, let's do it. Um, so that's how I got involved. And then that I've been doing this for two years. Um, and I met amazing people, um, and gotten and like been able to sit in on all the interviews. And that's been an amazing experience. Um, you know, like people, even like from the beginning, like people from like Jay or like Sam Han or Asara Nguyen or like Rob Lim, Seth Cheeks, Ivy Yang, John Yang, like Cliff Cho, um, Kimmy, Show Me, like Chops, uh, Joanna Brantley, like all these people that I've been able to have communication with. And like recently we got to interview Jeff Chang, which was super cool as well. Um, I thought this is like a name in a book I've never like will ever talk to, but I was able to have a conversation with him pre-interview him and then sit in on an interview that Jakey and Jojo did and bring it out to the world. So, you know, it's not easy doing this. Um, and I need, just need to do what's best for me at this point, but I'm eternally grateful for the, the 699 fam and how Jakey, Jojo, Julie, and Marcus, uh, just like all embraced me and allowed me to grow and try out my crazy ideas or, roll with the punches as we go. So I just want to thank everyone for allowing me to be part of it and lead y'all for the two years. Um, but for anyone who's like younger wanting to get into podcasting, maybe if you have the chops and you know, you could maybe hit up Jakey serious inquiries only, but, um, yeah, don't be afraid to try new things and just see what it's all about. Um, that's, you know, what you should be doing when you're young. I feel like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all I yeah. got right um, now. But yeah, but I, I just like to say, you know, uh, you also got to meet Trisha. You know what I mean? You also yes. got to meet Donnie. Yes. Uh, and you know, uh, I always like to say, you know, Michael, you've been pretty much you the reason why this podcast exists. Uh, even though me and uh, Julie and a few other friends, Marcus and Jojo, have started it, uh, this wouldn't have grown into the way it has. 
become without you and your uh, essentially your leadership and your producing chops and your determination to make this work. Uh, you know, it's really sad to see you take off, even though we're still working together on some other shit right now. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's sad to see you go, but you know, we're still going to be talking pretty much on a daily basis. So uh, I'll still yeah. be busting your balls pause. Uh, <laughs> but you know, yo man, like you, you, you've been, uh, you know, first like meeting you, uh, Trish is like just tuning in, like, yo, what is this like real sentimental <laughs> shit right here going yeah, on? Yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going. So now, nah, but I, I first met Michael when um he was straight out of college and uh he was uh I think he had a lot of great ideas, but he just needed to package it and then try to uh build it into an experience that he could experiment on. Mm. Um me being a devious person that I am, I just needed a podcast producer, but I kind of like just uh uh, drop them off into this this dome of hell for him to just kind of figure things out and um he was able to survive and now he's stronger than ever uh mm -hmm. now he now he could go and start any podcast and start a llc and avoid mm -hmm. taxes and do all of that so uh he has become <laughs> what he has become now he is wearing nothing but black t-shirts yeah and uh and he's gonna only have his hair slicked back yeah and just I'm look hideous yeah <laughs> yo but i like to ask you this man what was your favorite moment about the podcast from producing uh, it for the last two years i mean it's always been the interviews i think i being able to be a fly on the wall in those interview rooms and i you know we edit down the interviews so not everyone gets to hear everything that was said but just being able to meet the guests bring them in you having the conversations with them i can learn and then, you know, after the interview, we get to hang out a little bit, take some photos and joke around. I think those that's always been the thing for me, that connection to be able to be had. Um, and, you know, those those relationships continue uh, today with with certain guests. Um, and, you know, I've been able to, you know, see them other places, have conversations, stay connected through social um or email. And I think that, and I'm excited of where those relationships will continue to go because, you know, all these people that we brought on, we brought on for a specific reason because we believe that what they do is great and amazing and they need to be highlighted. Uh, so, you know, that's good. Also the chops event was awesome. Um, you know, putting on the live event for the first time a live podcast event and having all those people show up for it. Um, and just like giving, an OG Asian artist, uh, the recognition to hopefully like a younger audience is always been, is, is been awesome for me. But yeah, I mean, those are the things that come up right now, but you know, uh, all of it has been amazing and I've learned so much from, yeah, as you said, LLC a company, um, mm. to how to do taxes in a way that is <laughs> beneficial. Um, and the, all the backend stuff, uh, right? So, you know, it's an experience that I was not expecting with, you know, you never expect these things, but I am forever grateful for, for all of it. So, <laughs> yeah. so now I got to ask you, now I got to ask you, what was the worst experience that you've had with 699? The worst experience? Um, the least memorable. The, the least worst. Mem <laughs> 
Uh, Aside from dealing with me, obviously. Yeah, but, uh, I was gonna say know, when that, Jakey shows already, up, when Jakey showed up late to the recordings. Um, <laughs> um, the worst part. I don't want to be talking, putting airing airing dirty laundry on on. Oh uh, no, on it's air. all good, man. Right. But <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, Trish I, Trish I guess got, I, I, Trish got I extra close to the camera. Just for the- <laughs> I want to know. I mean, it just wears on you sometimes, right? When you, to be real, as a producer, I think you take on a lot. Um, just, and you have to pick up things that other people don't, um, regardless of if, even if you told them a hundred times or not. So, because the thing has to get done. And that's, you know, I think every producer agrees with that. Um, and having to do that extra work or like, you know, the the finessing of certain things and having to constantly be on um and you know there's times i wished i could just be like show up and just talk um when i you know was always had to be doing this 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 and the third um so i mean i guess in terms of like bad or like things that are not pleasant in the world of producing right um it comes with the territory right right yeah, yeah Quark, totally- dealing with talent yeah yeah, I feel dealing you, with talent, man. <laughs> dealing with talent. I mean, shit. Like, I, I, you know, I come from a production background as well, right? So mm-hmm. I definitely had to deal with a fair yeah. share of talent. But uh, yeah, man, it kind of lets you grow a thicker skin, and it also kind of tells you, like, yeah, man, uh, I need to step the fuck up, so <laughs> I could, uh, I could, I could not do this shit. So yeah, man, it was definitely yeah. a motivation factor as well but it also oh, yeah. teaches you a lot about human nature like how to talk to people um, yeah definitely. how to kind of like kill your kill your ego in many uh, mm-hmm. occasions so uh trish like i mean you know this particular <laughs> guest episode that you hopped on tends to happens to be uh michael's last so uh sad. you know it's a sad situation. yeah it's sad so like how, how you know how was this episode for you like did you have a good time you got to speak your mind yeah i really um I really liked uh, learning from my, I mean, because it's Michael's last episode. So, you know, sorry, JK. But I really <laughs> liked learning from Michael. I think that he's really thoughtful and a really good conversationalist and a very good listener. Um, and so I really appreciate, I feel very like lucky to be part of this last one. And I hope that you do stop laughing. It's not funny i'm sorry i hope that you like find ways to continue to do more like about face you know speaking stuff yeah yeah totally. thank yeah. you for the words oh and yeah i was i was laughing because yeah. i was just i don't i don't take i'm bad at taking praise well. yeah i don't but mm-hmm. no thank you thank you for thank you for all that mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh i cool so i mean thank you trish again for this very special appearance from you uh, Wait, yeah, no. we ain't done yet. Nah, I know, I know. We're about to go to the next. <laughs> okay, okay. I was like, I, I just like, wanted to say, I was like, I just wanted to up say, really like, you know, damn. Um, <laughs> nah, I just wanted to say that, yo, we've had a, we, we, uh, uh, you know, hopefully in the future we could do this again. Um, mm-hmm. you know, even though Michael is, uh, stepping down from six ninety nine mm-hmm. per pound, uh, six ninety nine per pound, uh, at least in this format is going to continue until the end of this mm. month and we're gonna have other guests lined up uh you know it's Exciting. gonna be a dynamic between me one more person maybe another person 
maybe another mm. person. It could be know. a panel. Who knows? It's you know what I mean? Um, it's yeah. free for all. It's, it's a party. Luck. And my, Michael might, you know, pop back in real quick, make a cameo, you know, and then step <laughs> out. Who knows? You know what I mean? So, uh, Trish, I mean, if you ever want to, like, join back in, uh, feel free. You know what I mean? The slot well, is wide open. Text me. Text me whenever. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So uh, now we're going to get into the shout outs of the week. So for the first shout out, I would like to get I would like to uh, let Trish do her thing. Which What, what do you want to okay. shout out? So I want to shout out um, one of my favorite kind of curatorial collectives. They're called Cheap Calorie, cheap as in the Korean word for home, run by two people um, named Michelle Fabiola and my good friend, Sophia Park, um, whom I met very recently. Oh, Sophia this is Park? a new friend. Yes, like Sophia Park. Sammy Kim's, like, beloved Sophia Park? Sophia, well, yeah, yes. Um, okay, yes. shout out to yes. Sophia. But yeah. Sophia Park as in... Very thoughtful, accomplished scientist slash curator slash art person um, slash translator slash activist. I like, I just, I really adore her. Mm. Um, And her and Michelle have really put together this fantastic um, collective that was once an apartment gallery and now they do um, curatorial work and really. I think taken this pandemic in stride and they've partnered with Olympia Arts, another amazing collective um, that really focuses on promoting gender marginalized artists to create um, a place to visit. And so there are a list of amazing artists that work that have different kinds of practices that are selling their art at really affordable prices. Um, And the proceeds go to the artists, but also to a cause of their choice. So basically what the Whitney tried to do, but like actually doing it well, and you can, okay. um, it's called A Place to Visit. Like Sorry, just shots, kidding. Like, boom, boom, boom. All right, okay. Well, I mean, okay. I know, that's no, I mean, right? you got to do what if you got to do. But if you, no shade to the Whitney, but, um, well, I guess I'm All shading shade. them. But if you go to www.artwithcheap.com and cheap as in J-I-P.com, mm-hmm. check it out. Um, this this version of Artists is up till September 22nd. Oh. And Yeah. That's, that's my that's my shout out. That's what awesome. it is. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. That's what's up. Um, all right, cool. So let's get a uh, let's give the platform. Let's give the floor to Mr. Michael Ken Stewart. Um, you know what's what's your shout out of the week, sir? Um, my shout out of the week is the Send Chinatown Love food crawl that's happening this month in Chinatown. So Send Chinatown Love. Uh, we've talked about it before, but they are a group of people. Uh, that are very invested in keeping small businesses in Chinatown alive, or restaurants mostly, and they're providing uh, restaurants with online tools as well as in, in-person in tools to be able to stay open and connect with customers. One thing they're doing is a uh, food crawl, right? So if you go to specific, if you go to Send Chinatown Love, they have specific restaurants that are part of it. You or, you uh, I think you purchase more than $5 worth of food, and then you get a ticket, and you can scan the ticket. You need three tickets, and then you can be entered into these prizes that they have. Uh, so they've done a great job in creating this uh, contest, or not contest, but a food crawl slash prize mm. situation for you know, to bring to bring in new customers into Chinatown and continue to support the businesses. And on that note, I mean one of the businesses that that is involved is Forty Six Mott. I just want to shout them out because last night, and you might. See, See, I might seem a little tired today because 
I was I went to a teach-in um, for Asians for Abolition in Columbus Park yesterday. But after Patrick of Forty Six Mont um, opened brought some pig out in the street, and uh, there was a feast for the people. There was corn, there was lobster, there was beer. Uh, we had way too much fun um, and stayed out way too late. But Patrick is just a really like he really supports the community. The guy like makes uh, meals for elderly and um, homeless people in Chinatown and hands them out to people on the street. Um, and he has continued to do that since April. Um, so if you're in, you know, he's his shop is part of the food crawl. Go support him. Um, he continues to do work that no one else has been doing, um, and really is looking out for the community and just uh, last night was amazing. Um, you don't really, I've never eaten on the street of Chinatown at, late at night when everything else is closed, but, uh, it was, it was magical to say the least. Mm, sounds good. I mean, you were definitely around a lot of rodents too, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of, a lot of situations, but, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. man, it is, it is a magical time to be in Chinatown late at night when the restaurants are closed, you know, yeah, it definitely yeah. has its own charm. Uh, but yeah, man, I mean, um, for my weekly shout out, uh, obviously, as you can see in the back, we have Otugi, uh, we have this snack that I've been eating is uh green tea flavored Kangnengi. Uh, this is, uh, you know, corn based. It's like Korean popcorn. But uh, fuck all this, man. I want to give a shout out to the one and only producer, Mr. Mad Names, a.k.a. Michael Kent Stewart. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please follow this man on Instagram. Uh, he goes by M-A-D.N-A-M-E-S, I think, specifically. But anyways, yeah, man, uh, Michael, uh, I'd just like to give a shout out to him again. Um, you know, he's done an excellent job of making $6.99 per pound what it is today. Uh, with the platform and the foundation that he has created. Uh, hopefully, we're going to keep this going. We're going to keep this podcast alive. I mean, you know, it has brought a lot of joy to many people. Uh, you know, like, uh, I think we have inspired a lot of people as well. We have brought a lot of great information, great insights. Shit, like we have, hey, man, we have 14 people tuning in right now. And on top of that, uh, we have like 180 followers, yo. So, on, mm -hmm. on Twitch alone, you know what I mean? So right. that's that's a that's a that's a fit. And um yeah, man. So shout out to Michael. Um, doing it for the people, Asian media. Come on, let's yeah, go. Yeah, 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 totally. Yes. Totally. Um, yeah, so shout out to Michael again. So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, please follow him. Uh Trish, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh like I said, hopefully we could do this again. Uh, heard a lot of great insights. Uh, it's definitely good to hear uh, the perspectives of someone coming from a world that requires you to think for a living. So that shit is, that shit is fire, man. I, I would love to, you know, read books and think. And that's a, that's a very lonely, but also I feel like a very uh, rewarding job. You know what I mean? Like it's, you're like basically doing self-discovery and self-awareness mm. constantly. So it's mm. kind of dope. It's dope. Mm. Um, yeah. Also dope. teaching the youth. Yeah, teaching so the youth. Honorable, uh, me, very guiding honorable. Them, guiding them. I mean, the thanks, right for, thanks for inviting me. Like, I didn't expect to, for you to, you know, invite me and have me come on and talk about stuff that I think about all the time. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Yeah, totally. Likewise. 
Michael, I mean, yo, man, it's your last episode. You know, do you want to wrap this up? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up all of it. Um, let me see. I don't usually do all of it, but I want to shout out um, Marcus, uh, who's our sound engineer who I've been able to work with. Um, cool dude. He gave me the name, Mad, the inspiration for Mad Names, because <laughs> I did an episode uh, with Jakey and JoJo like around a year and a half ago and then we had it was about 10 minutes of me going back and forth with them about what my name was and then afterwards marcus is joking with me he's like bro you got mad names i was like that's a good name so that's where that comes from so shout out to him he's always been really like a great person to like bounce ideas off of um also a great listener um as well um and a good dad from you know from what he's done so um Anyway, we'll wrap up the, the episode here. But um, thank you for everyone tuning in this week. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, click to follow us, right, to get notification um, of future episodes when we go live. Um, and you can keep the conversation going on social um, and let us know what you want to talk, what you want JQ to talk about next week. Um, we have IG, Facebook, Twitter, all under six nine six nine nine per pound. Jakey is at the only, as he says, SEO friendly at Jakey Cho. Um, my name is Michael um, and it's Mad Names. Trisha, Kim, uh, what? I don't know what you want to put out to the world. So I have two. Um, so my scholarly, my scholarly public platform for girls and women of color uh, is Queens Who Rule, which is also supposed to be SEO friendly. But also if you're interested in like my selfies, I like how um, you got real humble when you uh, decided to promote for your selfie. Um, that, was, that was cool. I'm joking. It's not just selfies. It's like other stuff too. But I'm like just poking fun at myself. Whatever. I'm young once. Okay. <laughs> good, for, good for the selfie. Shout out to the selfie. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, so yeah, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, again. Go, yeah, go ahead, Michael. No, but yeah, check out uh, Queens Who Rule. Um, Trish does a great job of putting together a lot of great content that, right, like a lot of us don't learn about in normal day to day. So I just, you know, always be, as Jakey says, exp- expand your mind, your mindset, um, and just continue to learn. Um, you know, that's what we always try to do. We try to provide new perspectives, make you question certain things, or go look them up on Google yourself. So thanks again. I, I mean, thank you for all the love for two years um, that you've given 699. Um, it's It's been a labor of love, uh, definitely. And it's hard to say goodbye. Um, and it's a tough decision for me to make. But please, 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 please continue to support 699 per pound, um, right? There's a lot of ways to do it. Twitch. We have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe on YouTube, actually. We have uh, the RSS feed, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We have our socials, IG, Twitter, Facebook. So please go support them um, and, you know, hit, hit a subscribe. Give us, provide us some uh, funds for us to continue to go, keep doing this. Um, and if you have, if you think you have what it takes to maybe produce this, uh, Hit up Jay Key, serious inquiries only. He will be the deciding factor on it. I won't. Um, so come correct. 
Uh, but tune in next Monday. Jakey will be live with a special guest or couples of guests. Who knows, right? So um, please stay, stay tuned. Follow us to find out who it is. And um, thank you for the two years again. So peace, y'all. Peace, 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 peace. Thank you again, Michael. Hey, yo, it's 699 for Pam. Podcast.